our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And today is just really, it's a great, solid, awesome, kind of epic reminder of some of the basics of our faith, really, and some the basics of who we are. So let's kick it off with prayer. Uh, Father, thank you so much. We believe this morning that none of us are here by accident. You have drawn us, and we thank you. So we make ourselves available to you now. Fathers, we think through our week, we recognize that we have not loved you with our whole heart, and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've certainly sought our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from you, and we ask you to forgive us. And God, we're so deeply thankful that you have made a way for that in our older brother and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. We're thankful for him. We're thankful to be related to him. So thankful that we know him. And God, I do pray that today would be a reminder. We're people of the supernatural. Sometimes, honestly, Lord, we barely believe it, but we're people of the supernatural, and we're people related to Jesus. Father, I also pray for anyone here today who struggles with clinging to that, believing that, laying hold of that. I ask that you would use our time to speak. We want to give you permission to break open our chests and to massage your truth into us. So Lord, we do that now. We put the week aside, the week that's past and the week that's coming. And honestly, we just avail ourselves of you and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to apologize. I don't know if any of you saw the older man that was outside here. I, did, I just wanted to make sure that he didn't scare any of you or any of our children. There's a guy out there marching back and forth, and he was mumbling something, and none of us could really tell what he was mumbling. He had his hands like this, and I walked out to him to make sure that he was okay. He was saying uh, over and over again, I've got the most beautiful thing in the world, the most beautiful thing in the world. And so I, I walked up to him and I said, sorry, excuse me, what is it? And he opened up his hands and it was, it was a smushed bumblebee. And I guess it just goes to show that beauty's in the eyes of the beeholder. I'm sorry. I don't know if any of you have heard me tell that joke before, but if you have children, if you've been at Gateway for a while, and if you have children here, I promise you they have heard it many times. 
I tell that exact joke almost every time I get a group of 5th, 6th, 7th, or 8th graders standing around in a circle, sometimes out in the hallway here, almost always when they're leaving for camp or leaving somewhere in the summer, I'll go, you know, pray with them, and I'll give a really serious talk, and then when they load in the van, I'll get in the van, and I'll, listen, one more thing, I want to apologize to you all, that old man, well, I did this recently to a group of middle schoolers that Josh was meeting with, and I just got like three sentences into it, and one of the older kids said, Pastor Ed, I've heard that joke like a million times. I have learned from my family that I get my sense of humor from my mother's father. My grandfather on my mother's side, he owned and ran a car dealership in Calpin, South Carolina, which is outside of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And when I was, especially when I was in high school, periodically, I would drive over to Pop-Op's car dealership, just hang out, because at Pop-Op's car dealership, you could always get a free Coke and cowpens would come to my grandfather's dealership, not to buy cars, but to just hang out and laugh because my grandfather would entertain the town of cowpens on a daily basis uh, just telling ridiculous, corny jokes like that. I've also learned that I get my, let's say, my wife, if she were here, she might say loudness. I get my loudness and extroversion from my father's side of the family. One of the women who married into that side of the family said that family reunions for the Allens was like a 4th of July fireworks display. It was one loud pop after another. I grew up in a time and place that still used the phrase, your people. They would say things to one another like, well, tell me who your people are. Because they knew that knowing your people told you a lot about yourself. But you could get information about really who you were if you knew who your people were. Well, that's what Acts is for us. The book of Acts is you and I looking at our people. You know, sometimes some of us are like Rhoda. And sometimes some of us are like Peter. And as we look through the book of Acts, what we really get is we get a perspective on our ancestry. We get a look at who we are. We get to hear stories about our maternal grandfather and our paternal grandmother. And we hear about family reunions and we hear about crazy things that happen. Today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19, through the end of chapter 12. As we look at, at this part of our history, I think we're going to learn at least three extremely powerful things about ourselves. And again, I have prayed for us today that these would be reminders for us. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through chapter 12, verses 25. And here's the first thing we're going to learn. We're going to learn that our people have often been slow to pick up on how big God is. Our people have often been slow to pick up on how big God is. They didn't always get how gracious He is. They often missed what he was up to. I'm reminded of the biographies of Jesus, how over and over again, the first witnesses, even the first disciples, failed to understand Jesus' teaching and his actions. He warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees, and they thought he was talking about bread. He healed on the Sabbath, and they thought he was the devil, and he was breaking one of the Ten Commandments. He talked about the coming of God's kingdom, and they thought he was going to overthrow Rome. Our people have often been slow to pick up on how big God is. 
one example of that is from our passage this morning. So I want to read the first part of chapter 11, 19 through 21. Let's look at that quickly and I'll explain. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Acts 11, 19 through 21. It'll be on the screen, but if you've got a, a Bible with you or a Bible app, I'd love for you to walk through this passage with me. Especially when we get to chapter 12, let me give you a hint. We're going to spend more time on just these few verses in chapter 11, but chapter 12 is one of my two or three favorite stories in the whole Bible. If you don't know this story, I bet it will be for you too by the time we finish. Acts 11, verse 19, and let's, just for this brief section, we won't do this every time we read, but for this brief section, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. Acts 11, 19 through 21, and we'll pick the story up from where we've been over the last few weeks. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, so remember, attitudes have changed, and what had been tremendous favor on the church in Jerusalem, people all around thinking, wow, these folks are doing really good stuff, has now turned dark. And persecution has begun, and with this section of the book of Acts, serious persecution ensues, and it will follow the Jesus movement for the first three or four centuries throughout the Roman Empire. Here it's, it's located primarily in Jerusalem, the, the seat of the movement at this point. Those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so these are areas, islands, off the coast, in the Mediterranean, they're not Jerusalemites, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also about Jesus, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And because they're telling them, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord among the Greeks in Antioch. Well, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Pause, that's verse 23. We'll get to that in a second. You may be seated. So let's look quickly at a map. I've got a laser pointer here to help me. Down here is Jerusalem. And the seat of the church initially is in and around the Jerusalem area. But once the persecution had started, they began to scatter, and it says they scattered really all up the coast. They mentioned Phoenicia, Syria, and they get all the way up here to Antioch. Now remember, they can't catch a train or a bus. They probably don't even have access to a donkey. They're walking. And Antioch is roughly 300 miles from Jerusalem. So that's approximately the distance from here to the far side of Pittsburgh, or if you go the other direction for family or for vacations, here to a little further than here to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. One of the tensions that had already arisen in the early growth of the Jesus movement, as you heard, revolved around spreading the story of Jesus beyond the Jews. The first followers of Christ, listen to this, they were extremely ethnocentric, and frankly, some of them were racists. 
And they didn't believe that Gentiles, non-Jews, could or even should get the grace of God. They didn't believe the message of God's truth and His forgiveness and potentially salvation should be told to any but the Jews. Now, little by little, God broke that down in spite, really, of the predisposition of these early Jesus followers. God used those first Jewish believers to carry the message to the Gentiles again. At times, in spite of themselves, they carried the message to the Greek world. Our people have often been slow to pick up on how big God is. And not surprisingly, we're sometimes the same. For example, when difficulty happens, you and I often respond by wanting, demanding immediate relief. And then sometimes when we don't get relief, we end up blaming God for these terrible circumstances in our lives. I don't know, many of you do, but I I don't know, all of you don't know my good friend Jan Zacharias, and Jan's not here today, but if you know my friend Jan, you don't want to be around Jan when you're having difficulty like this, because Jan will force you to look at it as an opportunity that's being presented to you. He'll ask you to examine how God might be at work through this circumstances, and you'll be thinking, wait, I don't want to think about how God might be at work, I want to be ticked off. But Jan knows how big God is. And Jan knows that that God is working through every circumstance to accomplish our ultimate good. We come from a people who have often been slow to know how big God is. I wonder for you and I, are we missing something today? Is there some area where we're not seeing how God is at work? We're in fact in a turmoil about something in our lives or around us, and this is the very point at which God is working in our lives. We're at a point in history, as I said here in the story, where the Jerusalem church favor has turned dramatically against them and persecution has started, and you know as well as I do what they were feeling. Many of them were thinking, you mean we're being persecuted and we're being run out of Jerusalem? Yes, because of that, the whole world, literally, will hear the gospel. Because of that, your life will take on more significance and meaning than you can possibly imagine. Because of that, you will see unbelievable wonders. And because of that, the kingdom of God will advance. Yes, you're being persecuted and sent out of your homes. A couple of weeks ago, Dean referred to something close to this. Dean was preaching on a passage earlier in the book and let me show you what Dean said, and we'll put it in a slightly larger context. I, w- I want to begin on the other side of the ledger, and here's what I mean. The Bible makes it clear that, in fact, the prophet Isaiah told us hundreds of years before Jesus, hey, God's word, when God speaks, or when you speak for God, or when you're in one of those kind of conversations, and you say something, and you know, wow, that wasn't me, that was God speaking through me, that does not do nothing. Isaiah says it like this, that doesn't return void. I mean, when God speaks, something, something always happens. So here's kind of how it looks. What we see, and this is one of the themes of the whole book of Acts, really the whole New Testament and maybe our lives as well. So, the gospel is proclaimed. The story of Jesus, the good news gets talked about. And when that gets proclaimed, on one side of the ledger, There's acceptance of God's movement. 
people hear it and their hearts are stirred. That happened to you and me. People hear it, their hearts are stirred, and then they begin to align themselves with God's message. Because God's Word, it's not empty. It doesn't return void. Something happens. So the Gospel is proclaimed. There's acceptance of God's movement, alignment with God's message, and here's the result. The result is the kingdom of God advances. And this is exactly what you would expect. But I want to show you again what Dean showed us on the other side of the ledger. Sometimes the gospel is proclaimed and there's aversion to God's movement. The heart says no and not only no, sometimes a radical no. And when that happens, you and I face adversity. Adversity confronts God's messengers. And you know what the result of that is? The result is the advancement of the kingdom of God. Either way, it doesn't matter. I'm reminded years ago, some of you have heard me use this illustration before. Years ago, when I was in seminary, I was a young man in my 20s, so this was 1870, and I heard a Romanian pastor come speak at our seminary, and he was a guy that had been through the Ceausescu regime in Romania during the period when, at the end of Ceausescu's reign, things went dark for Christians, and he began to uh, persecute Christians. And they made it illegal to evangelize. So this pastor would regularly go out and preach in the streets, and large numbers of young Romanians were coming to Christ under his ministry and being baptized. So they passed another law. You know, not only was it illegal to preach in public, it was illegal to baptize. And of course, this pastor continued to baptize. They put him in prison. They beat him up, literally persecuted him. They released him from prison, and he went out and started preaching. They'd bring him back, they'd beat him up for a while, send him out, he'd go out and start preaching, and young people were coming in droves to the church. So one time they brought him in and they put him in prison, but this wasn't the typical prison where they usually put him. They put him in the, I don't know, something, the official communist, whatever. And he had one of the party rulers for the country of Romania came to visit with Pastor Joseph Sign. Now, at this point, he's been in prison for weeks. He's badly beaten, missing teeth, face is disfigured. He walks into this really nice conference room, sits down at this large table, and sitting across from him is one of the party leaders for the Communist Party in Romania. Party leader, you know, tries to, uh, the friendly approach. And after a while, he says, Pastor Son, you know who I am. Yes, I know who you are. Do you know what I can do to you? And Pastor San said, you can do nothing to me. You don't have any power over me. If you let me go, I'm going to go out and preach. And young people will come to know Jesus. If you kill me, then my people will tell my story throughout Romania and young people will come to know Jesus. You have no power over me. Either way, the kingdom of God advances because our God is big. Look, our God is not threatened by difficulty. He's not threatened by obstacles. Our God is not threatened by cultural change. The kingdom of God advances. The second thing you need to know about our people. Our people are deeply and profoundly related to Jesus. I wish I had a long time to explain this. I really don't today, but 
I had a, a long conversation with a friend of mine and Diane's while we were away. We were away this past weekend. By the way, those of you who saw the pictures on Facebook, Jordan and Diane and uh, Dawson Graham and I went to Diane's niece's wedding in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was a black tie wedding. I've never been to a black tie wedding before, but everybody had to wear a tux. And I decided I was really upset because we had to all rent tuxes. This kind of ticked me off until, you know, we all put tuxes on, and I got in the elevator, and I thought, I look like stinking James Bond. Thank you very much. And I I realized I am going to make Gateway a black tie affair every Sunday. So sooner or later, that's going to happen here. So what was I saying? Oh, our, our people are deeply and profoundly related to Jesus. And we had a conversation, Diana had a conversation with a, good friend of ours we haven't seen in a long time, who was uh, talking to me about how, you know, they've been on the latest part of their journey. They've realized they just don't get Jesus. They love God, but they just don't get Jesus. I suspect some of you feel that way. Again, I wish I had more time to explain this today. We will have more time over subsequent weeks. They even made the point, you know, I think Jesus would be upset that We've kind of made him into an icon. And I I think that's kind of wrong. The ultimate point of this was all roads lead to God. You know, I think Jesus is extraordinary, but I, I believe all roads lead to God. I want you to know our people didn't believe that. Our people are deeply and profoundly related to Jesus. I want you to hear how this shows up. Alex made that point the first week we were working through the Acts series. I want to show you how this peaks in this passage. It just shows itself just a little bit. Listen to this. We're going to look at verses 22 through 26. I'm sorry. Let's make sure you're awake. Let's go old school again. Stand out of reverence for God's word. There you go. Stop the complaining. Okay. So beginning in verse 22 again. News of this, the business of a lot of these uh, Greek folks in Antioch becoming Christ followers, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So this is now in Antioch. Again, it's 300 miles from Jerusalem. This is folks who've been scattered because of the persecution. They just began to talk about Jesus naturally. We'll get to that in a moment. And it's spreading. And, and there are Gentiles who are hearing this thinking, I want to know more. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's an interesting word, look for. That word, look for, carries with it in the Greek a stronger sense than it does for us in the English. It's a word that suggests he had a hard time finding him. He's searching out to figure out where Paul is. He really wants to find Paul to get Paul to come help him because of this overwhelming response in Antioch. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Okay, you can be seated. Let me again give you some backdrop. So let's go to the map. So remember again, Jerusalem is down here. Antioch is up here. And then above it, still in the region of Syria, really Cilicia, is Tarsus. 
That was Saul, who's now Paul. That was his hometown. And he's gone back there. Years have passed since the Apostle Paul became a Christian. Paul becomes a Christian, and then for a while, he actually goes into the desert. Remember, Paul becomes a Christian first because he's on his way from Jerusalem up to Damascus, which is there, to actually find church leaders and kill them. And on the way, he gets blinded by this light and knocked off his horse. He hears God's voice speak to him. and You know, his life is radically changed. Mine would be too. And he spends the next decade studying the Scriptures and figuring out what happened to him. He consults at least twice with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, with Peter and James and John and the other guys, and he begins to get a handle on who Jesus was and what he means. And Paul maybe was the first one to realize this is not just for us. So in all likelihood, Paul is already up in Tarsus preaching to Gentiles. I suspect Barnabas has heard about this. So Barnabas goes to Antioch, realizes there's this overwhelming response. They can't even figure it out. These folks aren't even Jews. How do they know? Well, many of these folks didn't even believe in one God. And the Holy Spirit is filling them, and they're seeing all these fantastic things. Barnabas needs help. So he goes to get Saul. Let me give you real quick for kicks, for those of you who like this kind of thing. I just want you to see where we are. The purple here is the Roman Empire at its height. So this is really probably 50, 60 years after Paul and Barnabas. But the region that the map that I was just showing you is right over here. So that's Jerusalem, and up there is Antioch and Tarsus on around, and Rome is over here. And Roman influence has spread, obviously, you know, throughout Europe and northern Africa and Asia Minor. The area that we're talking about right now, Antioch, Tars, that's in modern-day Turkey. Antioch, you should know, was, just for kicks, you should know, was an extremely cosmopolitan city at this point. It was much younger than Jerusalem, but it was bigger than Jerusalem, and it was at like, a significant trade crossroad and it was home to many ethnicities by this time in history rome had made antioch state capital of the region of syria it was also reputedly a beautiful city rome had come in various rulers had come in and they had colonnaded the whole main street of antioch and they had paved it with polished stones so you can imagine many of the jerusalemites who end up going to Antioch, they must have felt something like country bumpkins. And yet these Jewish country bumpkins come to Antioch and they begin naturally to talk about Jesus and the message spreads. So news about what was happening in Antioch reaches the Jerusalem church and they dispatch Barnabas. And I think that's a sovereign thing because Barnabas would have been more sensitive to these Greeks receiving the Jesus message than some of the church leaders would have been. Barnabas was from Cyprus, as I said, an island off the coast, and he was not from Jerusalem. And the Scripture here describes him as a good man, full of the Spirit and of faith. And then Barnabas sees this fantastic work going on, and he seeks out the Apostle Paul. And as I said, 
Paul has probably already at this point started preaching to Gentiles, so Barnabas has heard about him, knows who Paul is, and knows how bright Paul is, how well Paul knows the law, so he needs help. He, he, he brings Paul, and under Paul and Barnabas, the work evidently grows dramatically. But did you notice at the end of verse 26 that the Antiochians were the first people who were called Christians? The verb translated here, were called Christians, it literally means to transact business. Isn't that awesome? F.F. Bruce is a, a preeminent New Testament scholar, and I love what he said about this. He makes the point that the title Christ was heavy laden with meaning for your average Jew. And especially at this point in history in, in the first century. There's all kind of Old Testament significance about the one who would come, the anointed one, the Savior who's going to save us and, and reestablish our kingdom. And of course what they have in mind is they have in mind that He's going to overthrow all oppressors and make us the preeminent world power. They, they don't know how big God is. They don't realize that Rome isn't big enough. That God's not going to send His Messiah to overthrow Rome. God's going to send His Messiah to overthrow sin and death. So they have broad and, and wide-ranging views of who the Messiah is and what he will be. But for the Gentiles, for the Gentiles in Antioch, it has no such meaning, this term Christ. In all likelihood, for the Antiochians, these Jewish Christ followers were simply the ones who were always talking about this Christ guy. F.F. F. Bruce imagines that conversation would have been something like this. You know, they bring him up constantly. They're always talking about Christ in social settings while we're doing business with their children. Even when we're at sport, they're talking about this Christ guy. Yeah, you know, I've noticed that too. But, you know, I have to say, those Christians, they seem to be pretty good people. Yeah, you know, I've noticed that too. I kind of think the message is interesting. And in this very common way, the term begins to be associated with our people. We're the people who come from Christ. They're not Jerusalemites. They're Christians. Our people were deeply and profoundly related to Jesus. That means a couple of things. Number one, their lives were saturated with Him. He was at the center of everything. Another thing, of course, is it's also true that they were Christians in the sense that they had the same spirit he did. Hold on, wait. Yes, Ed. The same spirit that animated Jesus animated our people. So the same kind of teaching that Jesus did, the teaching that people would listen to and go, we've never heard anything like that. That same kind of teaching our people started doing. And the same kind of wild and crazy supernatural stuff that was happening all around Jesus, it started happening among our people too. They started doing the same things. This is so true, in fact, that most scholars think the book of Acts, listen to this, most New Testament scholars really consider the book of Acts volume 2 of Luke's story of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Most New Testament scholars believe that Acts, the book of Acts, Luke wrote Acts, and he also wrote the biography that we call Luke. Most New Testament scholars believe that 
Acts is really volume 2 of the story of Jesus. Listen to uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, Luke says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. As if this book is going to be what Jesus continues to do and teach. Only now it's through His people. Our people were deeply and profoundly related to Jesus. And so are we. I wish I could say more about this, as I said. But look, if you struggle with Jesus, I want to encourage you to read one of the biographies of Jesus and then hear some of our stories. Because we're profoundly related to Jesus. Third thing, and we'll end with this. Our people believe that reality includes a spiritual realm that's all around us and interacting with us. Our people believed, they were crazy enough to believe that reality, reality includes a spiritual, supernatural realm all around us that interacts with us. This is important. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. They believed that because they experienced it. All right, now for one of the greatest stories in the Bible. You don't have to stand. Acts 12, verses 1 through 5. (laughs) Listen to this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So again, a little bit of history. Herod here is grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over the Palestinian area, and his son did as well. And there was a military coup and difficulty. His father was killed. And so Herod was sent to a you know, a fancy boarding school in Rome where he hung out with the uh, elite Romans and including the ruling class. So when the emperor changes in Rome, Herod gets promoted and he's given the title that his grandfather had over Palestine. When he gets there, you know, he needs to curry favor with the local population because he, after all, has to rule them. And so he gets a flavor of the climate, and he realizes, okay, these folks are very out of favor. So let's make a demonstration of it. Let's go after them. So Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This is the first of the disciples who's killed for knowing Jesus. The point that's often made about these disciples, you've heard me say it before, but at the risk of boring you, the point that's often made about these disciples, if they were making up this story, it's highly likely at this point that James would have said, well, wait a minute, I reconsider, stop the sword, I made it all up. But he doesn't. Yeah, James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven-day Jewish celebration. It's clear at the end of which they intend to kill Peter. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to pass him out for public trial after the Passover. So 
that sets the stage. It's clear what's going to happen. He intends to not only kill Peter, but kill him in a, a most public way. Now I want to read you F.F. Bruce's account of what happens next in this story instead of reading the story itself. I like this because F.F. Bruce is an academician and he doesn't usually wax poetic with the story like he does here, but this is such a fantastic story. So F.F. Bruce says this, Meanwhile, continuous prayer was being offered for Peter by the church of Jerusalem. The supplications of righteous people, of course, having great effect, according to James chapter 5. And while they were persevering in fervent prayer during what, in Agrippa's intentions, Herod Agrippa, in Agrippa's intentions was to be Peter's last night on earth, their prayer, unknown to themselves, was receiving an effective answer. For Peter was roused from sleep. Sleep, the calm sleep that springs from a good conscience and a quiet confidence in God. Peter was roused by a blow on his side and a voice which bade him get up quickly. The chains by which he was handcuffed to the soldiers on either side fell away as he rose. Four soldiers were posted in guard at a time. So four were guarding him, two on either side of him, and then two at the doors to his cell. The chains by which he was handcuffed to the soldiers on either side fell away as he rose. The cell was lit up. An unknown visitor stood by him, ordered him to fasten his girdle and tie on his sandals, wrap his cloak around him, and follow. Amazed at it all, and only half awake, Peter did as he was told, not realizing that it was really happening, but suspecting that it was a dream, and that he would soon wake up to find himself with the soldiers in the cell, compelled to face what the morning might bring. Through one gate and another they passed, both of them guarded. It may be that Peter was allowed to pass the first and second being taken, presumably as a servant. But no servant would be expected to pass beyond the outermost ward at night, and a different course was needed there. Wonderful to relate, however, the outermost gate opened automatically as Peter and his mysterious guide approached it. Then they went down, according to one text, they went down seven steps. That's not included in our account. It's it's another version of the book of Acts. It's called the Western Text. F.F. Bruce says, This edition has a circumstantial character that many regarded as a genuine piece of local color. In other words, what we're hearing in this story makes it seem like history, not like something is being made up. Derived from an informant who must have known Jerusalem as it stood before A.D. 70. Luke does not say where Peter's prison was, but it was quite probably in the Antonia Forest where Paul was later confined. The fortress stood northwest of the temple area and a flight of steps may have led down from it to street level comparable to flights excavated south and southwest of the Temple Mount since 1968 there. They traversed one street and Peter suddenly found himself alone. Thus far, he had followed his rescuer like a man in a trance or a sleepwalker. Now he woke up to his strange situation and took stock of it. This was the finger of God. It was an angel of the Lord who had come to snatch him from his imminent fate. I'm going to continue reading. Let's look at verses 11 through 19. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Peter, who's recently been arrested. Peter, who can't show his face in the city. She leaves him at the door on the outside. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking on the door. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Because our people are often slow to realize how big God is. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord Jesus had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Our people believed that reality includes a spiritual realm that is all around us and interacting with us. They believed it because they experienced it. This incident has often been uh, compared to an episode in the life of Sundar Singh. Sundar Singh was born in 1889 to Sikh parents in the Punjab state of northern India. His mother died in his early teens, and it sent Sundar into a despair from which he could not seem to recover. After some years of misery, he determined to commit suicide. The night before his decided date, Sundar told the universe that if the one true God did not reveal himself to him, that he would end his own life. That night, Sundar had a dream about Jesus. Jesus told Sundar that he was the Lord, and Sundar woke up determined to dedicate his life to following Jesus. When he told his family, his family immediately disowned him and kicked him out of the house, and his older brother determined to poison Sundar to death, which he tried, by the way, numerous times. At one point later in his life, Sundar had been preaching the gospel for a while, and there was already a mini-revival happening in northern India. So by order of the chief lama of a Tibetan community, Sundar was thrown into a dry well, the cover of which was locked. He was left there to die. Like many others before him, because Sundar was surrounded by bones and rotting flesh that lay at the bottom of the well, on the third night when he'd been calling out to God in prayer, he heard someone unlocking the cover of the well and removing it. Then a voice spoke, telling him to take hold of the rope that was being lowered. He did so and was glad to find at the bottom of the rope a loop in it so he could place his foot in it because his arm had been injured before being thrown into the well and then aggravated in the fall in the well. He was then drawn up, the cover was replaced and locked, but when he looked around to thank his rescuer, he could find no trace of anyone. The fresh air revived him and his injured arm felt whole again suddenly. When morning came, he returned to the place where he had been arrested and resumed preaching. News was brought to the chief lama that Sundar was back in public preaching again. The Lama declared that someone must have got hold of the key and let him out, but when search was made for the key, it was found attached to the Lama's own girdle. Our people didn't believe in the supernatural spiritual realm because they were superstitious and needed a way to explain their scary world. Our people didn't believe in the spiritual realm because they were clinging to myths handed down to, to them from equally clueless generations before them. They believed in the spiritual realm because they experienced it. Listen, you've heard me say before here at Gateway that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the central fact of Christianity. It might not have ever happened literally. That's certainly a legitimate perspective if that's what you believe, but you need to know that it is a fact. 
It is an incident that either happened or it did not. And our people always treated it as such. Our people believed it, literally. And our faith rises or falls on whether or not we believe this event, literally. If it did not happen, then the world is still an adventurous, sometimes wonderful place. We still want to try to be the best people we can be and make the most out of our lives that we can. Our lives may ultimately be devoid of meaning, but they're our lives and and they're all that we have and, and we need to do the best that we can with them and find the most pleasure that we can. We may even want to practice certain religious rituals in the process. It might be helpful. It's helped other people. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, everything we know about reality is changed. And similarly, if there is a spiritual realm around us that actually interacts with us, then we are foolish if we do not live our lives in light of that reality. In the case of our people, they weren't a group of scared ancient Near Eastern fishermen who smashed a bumblebee in their hands and needed to believe that it was beautiful. Our people believed this reality not because they needed to, not because they didn't know better, but because they experienced it. And we're just like that. That's who we are. We're people who have experienced the supernatural power of God. Let's pray.